Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. Uh, really quickly, uh, two things. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to play a clip. But before we do that, Junior, uh, I, I'm shaky. And I'm like, man, I must be real nervous. I realized I think I've had too much coffee this entire weekend. I, I went 30 plus years with no coffee. And in the last year, I, I met, you know, I finally broke in. Yeah, Veronica's like, yes. And uh, now I'm just like right now, I'm just all over the place. And so I just realized I pumped my veins full of coffee this weekend. And so, uh, you know, if I pass out, God, don't feel too bad, okay? Just know that I'm at. Anyways. On a, on, a more, on a more serious note, would you do me a favor? I, I, don't, I have a clip, an audio clip, so you're going to have to just kind of close your eyes and listen. But I have an audio clip I'd like to begin our sermon series with, and i just love to invite you to hear this clip together. And so with that being said, um, let's just take a moment and listen. Would it be weird to start with uh, what was it like to lose God for you? I'll start crying immediately. It's all right. I can say without any irony or without any hesitation that like growing up, God was my best friend, you know, nerdy, lonely, pathetic kid. And God was the guy who wouldn't make fun of me and who always wanted to talk. So for me to decide somehow that God didn't exist, um, I don't know, I felt like my dad died. The amount of grief and the amount of angst and the amount of fear is difficult to articulate and it's impossible for someone who has never been deeply religious to understand how something that so many people believe is imaginary can be so real. And it's made worse by the fact, at least in my case, that I couldn't tell anybody. So it was like my dad died and I had to hide my grief and never tell a soul. What you just heard was a story of deconversion. A representation of a growing movement of people, really who've always been around, but a growing movement of people who are leaving the church and deconstructing their faith. Perhaps you've heard of this idea of deconstruction. But before you point fingers in judgment and snarl, I think you should know why. This isn't just a rebellious generation, those millennials, <laughs> these Gen Zers. This isn't just a rebellious generation who's, you know, eager to sin. Uh, but did you hear the pain in his voice? Did you hear the grief? These are precious souls who've been burned by toxic churches and spiritually abusive leaders. They're tired of being used and manipulated with the words God said. They're tired of sexual predators posing as pastors. They're tired of power and politics co-opting pulpits. They're tired of fellow congregants who are willing to stand against mask mandates and lockdowns, but unwilling to kneel for black bodies. They have legitimate questions about hell that go unanswered. They have legitimate doubts about the trustworthiness of scripture that go unaddressed. And they have legitimate fears and concerns for their LGBTQI friends and family members that are either being met with hostility or being completely dismissed. And the weight of all of these inconsistencies and the grief of all of these hypocrisies have become so heavy that it was, that it, it has left them with little to no choice but to deconstruct the faith maybe that they once believed. Can I be honest? There is a need for a kind of deconstruction. Deconstruction is a really complex movement. But there is also a kind of deconstruction that is causing many to abandon their faith in Jesus. And so for the next five weeks, we are going to take some time to talk about this movement of deconstruction. And we have a lineup 
uh, that we definitely, I, I want to maybe share with you right now and you can kind of maybe even consider, maybe you know a friend, a skeptic, a seeker, somebody who might be in the process of reevaluating their faith and maybe kind of pulling at its roots. Love for you to bring them here, invite them here with you. But also if you're in this room here today and that's you, maybe you've already finished deconstructing and you've reached a point of atheism. Um, I want to let you know I'm compassionate and uh, we, we just want to tackle this in the next several weeks together as a church. And so this morning we're going to talk about, can we trust the Bible? Next week, Pastor Roger is going to uh, discuss evil, injustice, and suffering. Um, the following week, we're going to talk about toxic church, uh, where I'm going to spend some time talking about the abuse of leaders and institutions. Uh, the following week, we'll talk about hell. Um, and then finally, we'll talk about uh, the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Right, the question that's going around in the deconstruction community is, is the father a, a, a cosmic child abuser? Uh, how could he slaughter his son on the cross? And so we're going to hit these uh, several topics um, uh, um, in the next couple of weeks. So I hope, I hope that you could prepare your heart, that you could pray, and I hope that maybe you can invite somebody um, who might be interested in hearing what we have to say. Because I'm sure all of us either fit into one of those categories or know people who do. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I need you. Uh, we need you. Holy Spirit, um, would you illuminate the text? Would you do a work in us in this series? Is we're a church that wants to know the story and tell the story. But how can we tell the story if the story feels like there's so many holes and even the people we're telling the story are corrupt. What do we do? I pray that you would uh, continue to help us to be a church that's confident in Christ, confident in his words. And so that we could be a church that would give you glory um, in the Bay Area and beyond. Folks would come to know our true, beautiful savior, Jesus Christ. Would you speak to me? Would you speak through me? And would you speak to us this morning? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Can you trust the Bible? Can you be confident that these are the words of God? Now, just a PSA, a little public servant announcement. Um, Pastor Andy's birthday is coming up, and we went to Reno. There's a few of us in here that went, and uh, we took like a day trip just so we can go and eat and play video games. And, um, and we went to the buffet, and uh, at this buffet... Uh, we went to the buffet at like, I don't know, 9 a.m. <laughs> and, uh, and there was everything at this buffet. Uh, there were um, scrambled eggs, omelets, bacon, prime rib, <laughs> mashed potatoes, crab, pho, <laughs> tacos. <laughs> like if there's a spot that has pho and tacos, you kind of, oh, I'm not sure, Right? But it's a buffet, man, and, and we went in, and we went in for it. And it was just a little bit of everything, right? And you know what? It didn't, it didn't matter that it was breakfast. I had dinner. I had lunch. I had breakfast. I had it all. <laughs> so I say all that to say is I'm probably going to overload you today. <laughs> Y'all hear me? I'm probably going to overload you today. And, and, and it's still, for some of you, it's still not going to be enough. Um. Inevitably, you're still going to walk out of here with questions, but my hope is that maybe one thing, you know, because like, I, when I went to the buffet, <laughs> there's a lot of things, but like, oh, that crab was the one thing. It's like, okay, you know, I think I'm going to get the crab like repeatedly. Are you with me? It's like maybe, you know, in this buffet about the, the buffet of the Bible and what we're going to talk about today, you're not going to be able to take, we have a podcast so you can go back. You're not going to be able to take all of it in and all of it's going to come at you and it's not even going to answer all your questions, but I just hope maybe you take one thing, okay? What's your crab <laughs> this morning? You know what I mean? Take that one thing and I pray that the Holy Spirit would do his work. Amen? When it comes to our confidence in the Bible... Where do we start? Because if I start with the Bible, 
<laughs> Many of you immediately be like, well, I'm not, you know, well, of course the Bible is going to say what the Bible has to say about itself. Um, if I start with kind of the outsiders, um, then we're putting, the, we're putting God on trial as if, as if he's the one that needs to prove himself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start with the Bible. But in particular, we're going to start with the words of Jesus. Let us just listen to the words of Jesus. And then from there, um, my hope is to be able to articulate why we can trust the Bible. Amen? Matthew 5, 17 through 21. And I know last week, Roger said, um, Pastor Roger said, uh, he wants to beat the Baptist to the buffet. <laughs> Uh, you will not be beating the Baptist to the buffet today. <laughs> um, but I'm sure most of you know that already. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. We'll have it for you up here on the screen. And the scripture reads like this. This is the words of Jesus. Amen. He said this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Iota is like the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever what? Relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Finally, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Today, we're gonna to look at, if you're taking notes, the composition interpretation, and motivation behind the Bible. And we're going to look at it through the words and the life of Jesus Christ. We're, we're going to look at composition, interpretation, and motivation in hopes that you would walk out of here a little bit more confident about this thing we call the Bible, that we call the Word of God. Composition, interpretation, and motive of the Bible through the life and words of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about composition. How can the Bible be divine when it was made by men? You ever thought about that? How can you claim it's of God when it was created by men? Now, if you, re if you look back at verse 17, Jesus refers to the composition of what we call our Old Testament text. And he calls it the law and the prophets. I don't know if you saw that, right? He says, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but I came to fulfill. He calls our Old Testament text the law and the prophets. Now, what you have to know is that the Hebrew scriptures, right? The Jewish scriptures are not called the Old Testament. That's Christian, right? It's called the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is made up of three sections, right? It's made up of Torah. It's made up of the Nevim and the Chetavim. Now, I'm not, I can't say it with the Hebrew... Uh, uh, but it's the, the Torah, the Nebim, and the Chetavim. These are the three sections of the Hebrew scriptures, right? And these three Hebrew sections are translated the law, the prophets, and the writings. So when Jesus referred to the law and prophets in verse 17, he was referring to the Hebrew scriptures, which are what the Christians recognize as the 39 books of the Old Testament. Are you with me? 39 books of the Old Testament. So I, I want to pause here. Composition. These are complicated and complex texts. Are you with me? Let me just share with you the Old Testament composition. Multiple books, 39, composed over a millennia. That's a thousand years. Multiple genres, including history, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. Multiple authors, some you know, like Moses, others you may not know, like Baruch, who dictated on behalf of the prophet Jeremiah. 
and many who anonymously put together collections of writings that have been compiled and passed down through generations. How do we know this? Well, the text says it in themselves. But here's the bigger point. The Old Testament, the 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures, is what Jesus considered to be authoritative. Are you with me? In a sense, this was Jesus' Bible. He read it. He quoted from it. He taught it. He interpreted it. He memorized it. In fact, it was predominantly through the Hebrew Scriptures that he discovered the extent of who he was truly. Now, during this past week, and really this has been something I've been interested in for a long time now, but doing some extra research and kind of going back, I've encountered a lot of podcasters and bloggers, and I'm sure some of you might be in that space. Now, many of them are distancing themselves from the God of the Old Testament, right? It's kind of maybe, you know, to put labels on things, a progressive Christianity, Right, that, that kind of proclaims to follow Jesus only. Like they're really good with the Jesus movement. Are you with me? They adopt his love, his mercy and grace and forgiveness, which is, which is beautiful. We adopt that too. But they accuse the Old Testament of genocide, patriarchy, homophobia, But there's a tension with that approach. The tension with that approach is that Jesus saw the Old Testament as authoritative. You hear me? Now, some of you may be like, man, I don't even know where you're going with this. But some of you might be very aware of this, right? Jesus saw the Old Testament as authoritative. Jesus called the Old Testament God's word. He believed in its characters and events like Adam, Eve, creation, Jonah, Jesus held accountable people to the Old Testament. And he even used it to refute Satan's temptations in the wilderness. You can't unhitch the Old Testament from Jesus. Nor Jesus from the Old Testament. Both rise and fall together. Are you with me? What about the New Testament? What about the New Testament? Now I want to spend a little time here. Let me talk about the composition of the New Testament. Multiple books, 27, composed over a 50-year period. That's vastly different from the Old Testament. It was composed over a 1,000 years. Multiple texts, multiple books, 27, composed over a 50-year period. Three types of genres, right? You have narrative, you have letters, and you have prophecy. Multiple authors like Dr. Luke, who was funded to do a research pod project, on behalf of a man named Theophilus, right? And and, and Luke was hired and funded to go out and collect oral history and and compile eyewitness accounts of Jesus, of of the life of Jesus. There are authors like Peter and John who were literally Jesus' disciples and James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. There were writers like a man named uh, Tertius who penned Paul's words in the letter to the Romans. Again, all of this is indicated in the text themselves. Now, again, we're talking about what about the New Testament? We know that Jesus saw the Old Testament as authoritative. But what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus uh, uh, Jesus believed that the Old Testament was authoritative in God's word. But why do Christians uh, believe that the same goes for the New Testament? So let me, this is going to be an oversimplification Um, And I'm going to use, I'm going to refer to Matthew 28, which is considered to be the great commission. Uh, And so Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you're going to, you're going to hear Jesus talking to his followers. He's going to commission them. He's going to send them out to go and make disciples of all nations. Okay. And so what you're going to see here in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is going to say this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so what we see in Jesus Christ, Jesus is God's final revelation. Are you with me? Like when God ultimately revealed himself, he didn't send another book. He sent a person named Jesus, his son. 
And Jesus and his followers believed that he had authority equal or greater than, even greater than the Hebrew scriptures. Are you with me? And so as you go on in verse 28, verse, I mean, in chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Then he's going to tell his disciples, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, what is he doing? So the one who has all authority, Jesus, now sends his disciples out to be his authorized witnesses. Right? In fact, that's what an apostle is. It's a, it's a, it's a sent one. So what does Jesus want his disciples to do with their delegated authority, all right? And so here you have Jesus, who is the ultimate and final revelation of God. He is God in the flesh. He says, I have all authority on heaven and on earth, so that covers everything. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, now you go. And so he says, I'm taking all this authority that I have as God, and I'm commissioning you, and I'm authorizing you to go into the world and be my witnesses. Are you with me? And so what are they going to go and do? Look at verse 20. He tells them, now go into all the nations. And he's going to tell them to baptize them. But here, here's what I want you to see. He's going to say, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Y'all see that? So the early Jesus followers realized what Jesus was doing when he sent his apostles. You see, his apostles were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were authorized by Jesus to tell the Jesus story and to teach Jesus's words and these stories and these words that were told and this life that was lived by God in the flesh were compiled together to become the foundation of the church. All right, so you have the Old Testament, which Jesus authorizes God's word. And then you have Christ, who is God's word in the flesh. And then you have him authorizing men to go out and teach what he said and what he did. So you put those two together and you have an Old Testament and a New Testament that we as Christians believe is the word of God. The authoritative text. So the Bible, the Christian Bible, is complicated and complex. Think about this. It's a library. It's not one book. It's 66 books compiled over a thousand years plus. It has multiple genres, multiple authors. This is one of my favorites. Authors ranging from prophets, kings, and scholars to farmers, fishermen, and shepherds. It was written on three different continents, three different languages. But here's the most critical point I want to make. And if I've lost you the whole time, here's where I just want to read you back in. Are you ready? This might scandalize you. Did you know that the Bible is both a divine work, a divine word, and a human work? Do you know that? Where, where are all my church kids at? Some of you are like, I don't know if I want to raise my hand here. <laughs> right? Or maybe you've just been, where are my churchy people at? You've been in church a very long time, right? If I am. <laughs> I'm a church kid. Uh, if you were raised in church culture, there's a possibility. I'm not saying everybody, but there's a possibility that your church culture overemphasize the Bible's divine origin. And in overemphasizing the Bible's divine origin, some of you in here think that the Bible just fell out of the sky. Right? You, judging by your laugh, I'm, I'm in a good place. Right? Uh, um, he, here's your reasoning. Okay? Here's your reasoning. And maybe some of you that don't trust the Bible, I'm going to try to articulate what you might be thinking. And you might be like, no, that's not. I want to do a good job of representing where I think you are, okay? Here's your reading. If it's divine, then it has to have like little to no human influence. Are you with me? Like if you're going to call something God's word, it, humans shouldn't touch it. 
So if that's the reasoning, then you think that in order for it to divine, it just kind of had to like just, there it is. Thanks, God. Right? Like that's kind of where some of us have been led to believe. And that's where there's some skeptics will say, well, how do I, if man's hands are all over it, then how could it be divine? It had to have like magically appeared in all of its glory for it to be from God. Like people think this way. And if that was you, then, you know, when your junior college professor or your favorite YouTuber or the TikTok channel keeps coming up in your algorithms, <laughs> when they begin to highlight the very real human process involved in composing the Bible, it'll, it'll cause a crisis of faith. Are you with me? And it'll cause you to start to doubt the legitimacy of the Bible's claim that it's divine. Because for it to be divine, it had to have no human input at all. Or at least that's what we think. That's a mistake. Can I admit some things? Yes, the scriptures came through. They came to us through a rigorous selection process. And some of you just think it was like a bunch of old white guys. They were like, yeah, I'm going to do that. It was rigorous. There was criteria. Can I tell you, you know, we're, you know, we have fundamentalists, right? Like the Bible, 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 right? And then you have the progressives, right? They're like, oh my gosh, no way. Like that's ridiculous, right? And both of them are like Spider-Man pointing at each other. It's the same people. Super dogmatic. The fundamentalist is dogmatic. If you don't believe the Bible, you're a heretic. And the progressive is dogmatic. If you believe the Bible, you're, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, y'all the same people. Like there's no flexibility, no nuance. It's all black or white. If you think, if you were raised thinking the Bible was clean and clear and when you read it, everyone gets it right. If you were taught to believe that, then there's going to be a heavy crisis of faith if you just open your eyes and begin to read and begin to look around. Are you with me? Just experience life. Yes, the scriptures came about through a rigorous selection process. No, we don't have access to the original manuscripts. Yes, the transmission of the manuscripts we do have come from generations of scribes and copyists who at times made mistakes in transmission. Some of you are like, oh my gosh. Are you getting nervous? <laughs> Don't be. Because we have a wealth of collections. Right? For the Old Testament and manuscripts, we have the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. We have the Masoretic texts. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't got time to give you the whole breadth of this whole idea of how this works. We have passed down manuscripts, thousands of years of collection. Not to mention the New Testament manuscripts, which are widely considered by all scholars across the spectrum. Atheist and Christian. There's a wide array. It is, it is a, a truth that is admitted on all sides that the New Testament... Are you ready? New Testament is the most well-preserved document in all of antiquity. We have enough manuscripts to see the mistakes and admit the mistakes. That's part of the problem. Some of us have grew up in, in, in atmospheres where we can't admit it. No, 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 no. Don't say nothing about the man part. It's all divine. And then your kids grow up and some of them are not here today. And then when a pastor comes to dare talk about the word, you, get, you know what I'm saying? Are you with me? Okay, I got to get back here. We have enough manuscripts to see the mistakes, to correct the mistakes. Some of the copyists copied certain things wrong. Some of them added an editorial sentence, a phrase, and it's there, but it's not here. But we have enough manuscripts to see the mistakes, correct the mistakes, and to preserve with certainty the essence and full breadth of meaning in the text. And you still might be skeptical, and that's okay. 
But you, you really should know, you really should know this in your skepticism, okay? Christians have always believed that the Bible is the result of divine providence and human process. Like that's not scandalous. It's not the dirty secret as one commentator said. It's divine providence and human process working together to bring God's word to his people. And that's not scandalous. I love what Professor Tim Mackey points out. God has always revealed himself to his people in this way. What do I mean by this way? Look at Jesus. We believe that he was truly God and truly man. Amen? Like he wasn't 60, 40. (laughs) Y'all hear me? Like he wasn't 50, 50, half and half. Right, right. He was fully, truly, holy God, fully, truly, holy man. Are you with me? This is a paradox. (laughs) And at times people have mistakenly in the histories have, have, have overemphasized his divinity and said he wasn't human at all. And at times throughout history, people have overemphasized his humanity and said he wasn't divine at all. The same can be said for the Bible. There are, there are many so-called holy books, right, that are out there with more magical origin stories. But the beauty of the Bible, and I think the more compelling aspect, is that God inspired real human beings in real historical context to write as though it was the very breath of God penning the words. And God did this without possessing them. They didn't go into a trance, you know? He did this without possessing them. He did this without violating their personalities or their faculties. What a mystery. What a profound, beautiful mystery of what the divine word and the human work has produced. And over the centuries and millennia, God's providence has guided and shepherded the process. Now, you can still remain skeptical in this room. That's okay. But don't get it twisted. This isn't scandalous to Christians. How y'all doing? I want to move from composition to interpretation. How can you trust the Bible when so many people interpret it so differently? Right? I mean, we got people, you know, snake handlers reading a portion of scripture of Mark that says like you can, you know, venomous snakes won't hurt you. And so they're, they're in worship service with snakes. It's true. How can we trust the Bible with so many people interpreted in so different ways? Let's look at the last part of verse 17. Remember, Jesus, Jesus says, Jesus talks about, I didn't come to abolish the what? Law and prophets. And, you know, there's a whole fascinating concept about that word abolish, to destroy, take down, deconstruct in many ways. And I don't have time to go on this tangent. He said, I didn't come to abolish them, but he says, I came to what? Fulfill them. Fulfill them. Now, as a good Hebrew man, they would have expected Jesus to say that he came to obey them. Are you with me? As a a Hebrew rabbi, which Jesus claimed to be, they would have expected Jesus to say, I came to teach them. But he didn't say, I came to obey them. He didn't say, I I came to teach them. Yes, he obeyed them perfectly. And yes, he taught them perfectly. But instead, what did Jesus say? I came to fulfill them. The word fulfill means to complete. It means to fill to supreme fullness or satisfy. You see, Jesus claimed to be, are you ready? The realization of the Old Testament text. The actualization of God's word. He, 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 told, he once told the Jewish leaders in John 5, 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. 
The Bible is about me. The Old Testament is about me. It's a, I've come to, not, not to just teach it or to obey, I've come to fulfill it. And listen, while the scriptures are the written word, Jesus is the living word. And we can't get it twisted. The Bible, all 66 books, which are written over a period of a thousand years with multiple authors and genres, tell one unified story that points toward, leads toward, looks at, and looks forward to Jesus. And it's when you approach the interpretation of the scripture without Jesus at the center that you will no doubt get it twisted. Here's why you might be listening today struggling with trusting the Bible. Maybe you were led to believe that the Bible is some kind of behavioral manual. Anybody in here? You, let me, one big boring list of everything that I can't do. Or maybe it was used to hammer you over the head. So that instead of pointing to Jesus who fulfilled the law, fingers of judgment were pointed at you. You hear me? I mean, it's a buffet, y'all. Just take something. Right? Instead of pointing to the text and putting Jesus at the center, who obeyed it perfectly, who fulfilled it, a story about him, you turn it into a behavioral manual of all the things that you can and can't do, and then you were hurt or wounded by an ignorant church who used it as a hammer, not to point to Jesus who fulfilled it, but to point fingers at you. Or maybe you were led to believe that it's some kind of textbook. <laughs> it's a science book, right? It's going to tell me how old the earth is, right? Are you with me? <laughs> it's a science book that dropped from the sky. But then you turn to page three and there's like a talking snake with legs. I'll never forget a question I had. It was an umbilical cord. <laughs> like, yeah. All right. Did Adam have an umbilical cord? Why do we? Uh, belly buttons. I'm sorry. Belly buttons. Yeah. <laughs> belly buttons. And you're, you know, you're sitting there ready to like witness to somebody. You know what I mean? Like you got all the depths of the Bible. And, and they hit you with a belly button. And you're like. <sighs> I got hit with the belly button this year. I'm a pastor. I was sweating bullets. <laughs> you know, and what about the dinosaurs, right? <laughs> what about the Neanderthals? What about Darwinian evolution? Science book. Y'all hear me? Science book. You're going to have a hard time turning into a page and getting an accurate description of like why it's this and why. You're, are you with me? Okay, I hope I'm talking to somebody. Again, buffet. Praise God. Or maybe you were read to believe that it can make you rich. <laughs> this is my favorite one, right? Maybe you were led to bring, you know, it's going to bring you good fortune. Come on, y'all. Maybe you received a steady diet of prosperity preaching. I call it trash theology. Right? Or how about motivational speaking? From gifted communicators who get it all wrong. Some of you have it on your rotation now. You do. You have people on your podcast and people on YouTube that you think are men of God preaching a great word and they're just filling you up with flesh. I wonder why it's all about us. I wonder why, you know, you've been like, why am I struggling with this? Or why is it hard for me to give over my selfishness? Or why? You're feeding yourself with this. I'm talking to Christians. So what happened? Suffering came. The guy on TV got rich and you're still poor. You're still broke. Some of you have mom and dad that kept giving all their money. You, you Stop it, mom. Stop it, dad. Can't you see? 
when suffering came, or how about this, when you were confronted by death, your trust in the scripture collapsed like a house of cards. Or maybe you're appalled by the so-called people of God in the Bible. Have you ever read some of the things that go on? And you thought that was the bad guy. You're like, oh, shoot, that was King David. <laughs> you with me? Like this dude murdered, adultery. Many folks thinking it was even a, a, a sexual assault and rape of Bathsheba. He was a king of power. I know you can debate about all this, but we can go to other spaces, patriarchy, misogyny. Are you with me? And these are all people who are done, like, they like trusting God. They, they love God. Polygamy? Rape? Or maybe you've just seen just how unloving and hypocritical the people who proclaim to read it are. Right? Crusades. Cults. Slavery. Like I said earlier, people willing to stand up against mask mandates and lockdowns and not kneel for black bodies. Y'all with me? Now, this could get really political, but let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. Email me if you want. But we all, we're all to blame. Can I say, here's one thing you can count on. One thing you can count on. Again, this might be your crab right here. God told you I'm all over the place tonight, today. Here's one thing you can count on. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, the Bible is not fantasy. It's reality. Like when you read the Bible, at the very least, you're going to know it's not going to hide. <laughs> are, you, are you with me? It's not going to deny. It's not going to run from the truth. God is a God of truth. God exposes truth, even when it's his own people. In fact, and I'm going to go off on this tangent. I don't have time, but oh well. When Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it, he must have been saying that because some people might have been thinking he was what? Coming to abolish it. Why would they have been thinking that Jesus came to abolish it? Well, because Jesus probably operated in, as a reformer or maybe a kind of deconstruction in which he came to dismantle corrupt institutions, in which he came to call out the hypocrites and the church leaders. Y'all know Jesus went into a temple and made a whip, and then he started hitting the deacons. <laughs> he kicked them out. He flipped tables. Now, there's a kind of deconstruction in academia, and then there's a kind of different types of deconstructions in pop culture. Now, time to get in and explain all this. But in many ways, Jesus was being confused with dismantling, but he was calling out corruption because there's sin. Judgment comes to the house of God first. He said, my, this is a house of prayer. My father's house is a house of prayer, but you turn it into a den of thieves. The Bible's not fantasy, it's reality. It doesn't hide, deny, or run from the truth. But if your primary mode of interpretation is Jesus, if Jesus is at the center, if you look at the scripture, it's Jesus who is, it, it, it speaks of him, points to him, looks to him, are you with me? If your primary mode of interpretation is Jesus, how he lived, how he loved, how he died, then the good, the bad and the ugly of scripture all work together to tell the story of a God who so loved the wicked world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him will have everlasting life. He did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And all the ugliness and all the pain 
and all the institutional corruption and all the sin committed in the name of God and all the other things that are committed outside of that name was pinned to him on that cross. Finally, motivation. If the Bible's God's word, I'm gonna dig a little deeper on this. If the Bible's God's word, then why has it caused so much evil? And I've kind of touched on that a little bit, but I wanna, I wanna land here. You see, it's not just the interpretation and application. Like, you know, there is a doctrine, right doctrine. Do you have the right beliefs? Do you know what the Bible says rightly? And then there is right practice. Because you can know the Bible, but not live the Bible. You can know Christ and want to look, but not look like Christ. Are you with me? God, yes, he's interested in right, right doctrine, but he wants more than right doctrine. Are you with me? there are people who proclaim to love Jesus and be transformed by the Bible but they're evil and manipulative see God doesn't just want your right doctrine because knowledge puffs up into pride but God wants a right practice but can I tell you what else he doesn't just want right practice he wants a right heart he's after your heart He's after your heart. Look at verse 20. It says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. What is Jesus saying? Who are the scribes and Pharisees? Jesus often called out the scribes and Pharisees. You know what he called them? Actors putting on a show. Don't know anybody like that? <laughs> Here's why he called them out. The religious leaders. Uh, they took pride in external displays of righteousness. What do I mean by that? They love to sit in the front of the synagogues. No, no, nothing against y'all sitting in the front. <laughs> so I know, I mean, the people in the front are like, oh, shoot, I'm going to just next week. I'll be, no, no, no. They love to sit in the front they wanted the best seats, right? Why they, because they wanted to make a show of their giving. They showed that when it was time to give, guess what? They were the first ones to go. You know what I mean? Just like, you know, almost like they're showing, see how much? <laughs> Let's just flash my name and how much I'm giving. They wanted everyone to see. They sat in the front row, the, the best seats, and they, they gave big too. Are you with me? They love to pray out loud. With their fancy words, theological language. And when they fasted, they made sure everybody knew about it. And they may not have even said, hey, everybody, I'm fasting, but they'd dress all dirty, right? They'd make sure that they looked all like starving and hungry and they'd walk and pray out loud and like, oh, Lord, <laughs> I'm suffering so much for God. I'm fasting. I'm on day three. What about you? <laughs> How many days have you fasted? <laughs> right? You ever? <laughs> I got to get out of here. You, we're almost done, but I got to get out of here. But this is, you ever met somebody like, you're like, you know, they bring up fasting and ask you about it, but strategically they want you to be like, well, tell me about you, you know? Okay, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm the one that does it, but I'm just saying like, you know, it's like, like are you really want to <laughs> tell me about your fasting? Okay, that's great. So I'm on day five. <laughs> Y'all with me? Yeah. Buffet. Grab a piece of crab. That's all I want you to do. They love to make a show. Um, and you know, many marveled at how righteous they were. Man, they give a lot. They pray a lot. They read the Bible a lot. Look at the words. Have you ever been in church and you thought to yourself, man, I'm not like that at all. They're fasting. They're giving. So many marveled at their righteousness. But Jesus knew their hearts. Y'all with me? They didn't love God. They loved power. 
They didn't love God. They loved authority and control. They didn't love God. They loved to be seen and applauded by men. They knew the scriptures better than all of us. They had the right doctrines and the right practices, but their hearts were all wrong. I invite the team to come up. Jesus called those who, who would follow him. Jesus called those who would follow them to, to him to a different quality of righteousness. Are you with me? Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, there's a kind of righteousness that you think I'm calling you to. Like you think the Pharisees are the standard. Mm-mm, mm-mm. You need to exceed the Pharisees. You see that? That was in the text. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond. I'm like, man, how can I exceed that? They give a lot. They read a lot. They memorize a lot. They pray a lot. They fast. That would have been, immediately, all of you would have thought that. All acting, all performing. What do I do more, do more? Jesus, exceed the Pharisees. What does it mean to exceed? How can they exceed what they do? I got a full-time job. I got kids. Got a life. But Jesus wasn't talking about external righteousness. Jesus was talking about, wasn't talking about external showiness. The righteousness that Jesus demanded of his followers was a righteousness of the heart. Therefore, if it's a righteousness of the heart, it could not be secured by works, but only by faith, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. The kind of righteousness that affects the heart is a kind of righteousness that trusts in the story of Jesus Christ. What works must I do? How high do I got to jump, God? How many times do I got to go to church, God? How much do I have to give, God? He says, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to simply believe and trust that the story of the Bible is about me. I'm asking you to believe and trust that the law, you break it. But I have perfect, I have fulfilled it. I have obeyed it perfectly for you. And that gets me excited. Trust and believe that on the cross, I took your sin upon myself. Trust and believe that on the cross, even though some of you find it disgusting, it's beautiful and ugly simultaneously. Trust and believe that the evil that you've done, if you would just believe was put on Christ on the cross, And if you believe Christ's righteousness, his perfection was put on you. And if you would trust that story, if you would believe that story, then your righteousness would exceed the performance, the acting, the playing church of the Pharisees and the scribes. That's what I'm calling people to. And if people would be called to that, people would submit to that, then the church would be beautiful. Then the church would be spotless and the bride would be prepared. And all the evil and injustice and suffering and pain that have happened in God's name, you would be able to see that those who did it took God's name in vain and look nothing like the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. You with me? I'm going to close. I'm going to just show you two pictures. I'm taking, um, and it might be a little blurry, but that's okay. Uh, On the left is Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Thomas Jefferson's Bible. On the right is the Holy Bible for the Negro Slaves. That's what it's titled. Let me tell you a little something about Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Actually, you'll be on the right. Thomas Jefferson's Bible. It's called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It featured sections of the New Testament that he literally cut out with a razor blade. And then he like glued it together to create his own Bible. Are you with me? 
So like the thing, like the miracles, <laughs> the resurrection, all the stuff that Thomas Jefferson as a deist and a naturalist doesn't believe in any of that stuff. Like he left that stuff in there and he cut out only some of the teachings and some of the things that Jesus, the things that he liked, he put into this. On the left side, you have the Holy Bible for Negro slaves. And you know what that Bible features? This Bible doesn't feature anything. It excludes a lot of things. You see, missionaries wanted to go and evangelize the slaves. And so the slave owner said, wait a minute, before you do that, we want to pull out of the Bible anything that might talk about liberation, that might talk about freedom. We, we want to pull out of the Bible anything that might inspire the idea that they were free men and free women. And so 90% of the Old Testament is missing and 50% of the New Testament is missing. You're not going to find Exodus. Let my people go. You're not going to find Jesus that I came to make you free. Just for reference, our Bible has 1,189 chapters. The Negro Slave Bible has 232. This is what happens when Jesus is not at the center. This is what happens when the institutions are corrupted by evil men. Like slave owners, we can twist and manipulate the scriptures to satisfy our own evil desires. Or like Thomas Jefferson, we can take what we want from Jesus until he calls us to pick up our cross and follow him and leave that out. And so this morning, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna say a prayer. Um, but as we just take maybe a short little course, I would love for you to just think about your takeaway. Just think about your takeaway. What, what, did, what, what spoke to you today? I mean, you don't have to be, a, you're not to be a convert right now. I'm not trying to convert you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Just what was your takeaway? And how, how, how is that takeaway ministering to you and your doubts, your concerns, and your frustrations? Amen? Let's take a moment. John 6, 66, go figure. It says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is a story of some of, many of Jesus' disciples turning away. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you wanna go away as well? Maybe some of you feel like that right now. To which Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Man, in the midst of folks falling away, in the midst of folks who were walking with Jesus, they were once his followers. Many of them were walking away. Jesus looks at his disciples and he asks them, are you going to go too? And Peter responds, who would we go to? Who else has these words of life? My prayer is that if you're struggling in your faith, you're struggling to trust the words of Christ, my prayer is that you would rise up like Peter in spite of what's going on around you, in spite of what you have seen, observed, in spite of what you're hearing, that you would be able to see Jesus, the Holy One of God, 
in him only. Who else? Who else? Where else are you going to find the words of life? Where else are you going to get water that you can drink and never thirst? Where else are you going to find food that satisfies the hunger of your soul? Where else are you going to get it? Where else are you going to find it? Some of you have tried many different wells, many different foods, and they've never satisfied. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that Inspire Church would be a church that is grounded in your word, breathed out by God, guided the human authors, inspired, inerrant in its original manuscripts, passed down, transcribed, copied, preserved, the process of man, the providence of God, 66 books, different authors, different genres, ranging from kings and scholars to shepherds and farmers, all one unified story, pointing to our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. In Him, these words have been fulfilled. Help us to be a church that is motivated from the heart to love you, to look like you, to walk with you, and to rightly divide the word of truth. And so, Father, as we leave this place, may we not leave your presence. Pray you would anoint this sermon series to do a great, deep work in all of us. So, Lord, we love you, we honor you, and we praise you. Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on, let's give Jesus a praise. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspirechurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.